Hi everyone, and welcome back to Singing for Survival, the Capoeira History Podcast. This is Desconfiado, and today's episode is all about Capitão Virgulino Ferreira da Silva, also known as Lampião. Lampião is an extremely popular Brazilian folkloric hero, particular to the northeast of the country, um, who appears in several capoeira songs through today. Like Zumbi, Lampião is not considered a capoeirista per se, but he's an important symbol of resistance in Brazilian culture, which obviously translates over into capoeira culture. Lampião's an incredibly interesting and complex character, with elements from uh, American gangsters like John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Al Capone, uh, hints at Candomblé traditions and practices, and uh, most interesting, literal comic book fame. Uh, I really, really enjoyed the research into Lampion, since as, as a capoeirista, we kind of get a very surface-level uh, picture of who he is, particularly for non-Brazilian capoeiristas. So I really learned a lot, not only about him, but also the, the, the northeast region of the country where he comes from. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to, to sharing all of that with you. This episode is going to be a little longer than, than the last couple because of just of how much information there is. Uh, and I'm really only touching on uh, a lot of the different aspects of, of his character and history. So I, I hope you'll join me uh, all the way through this. And... Um, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did researching it. So, let's get into Lumpion. Before we get into Lampião himself, I think it's important that we talk about both the region that he came from, as well as the type of popular literature that played a huge role uh, in his popularity. Lampião grew up and gained his fame in the Brazilian Sertão. The Sertão refers to a region in the northeast of Brazil that includes parts of the present-day states of Alagoas, Bahia, Pernambuco, Paraíba, Rio Grande do Norte, Ceará, Maranhão, Piauí, Sergipe, and Minas Gerais. This region of Brazil is known for its particular dryness and really hard way of life. In the early 20th century, there were few schools in the Sertão, and travel was difficult due to a lack of roads. This means that most travel uh, would have happened on, on animals like horses or donkeys, which is going to limit the development of the area. But maybe even more challenging than that was the, the political structure of the region. The landowners of the area, um, referred to as coronels, held all of the real political power and faced almost no pushback from the state, which was typically on their side. This allowed them to rule over the lower-class farmers in the region with impunity, often controlling who was elected, um, which people were persecuted, who was acquitted, and uh, even in some cases who was killed. 
in response to this oppression of the upper class, uh, a form of social banditry emerged known as kangasu. And many men and women decided to leave their normal lives and become nomadic bandits uh, in the kangasu, known as kangaserus. Kangasu had its origins in the late 19th century, but was particularly prevalent in the 1920s and 1930s. And it, it, it's interesting that this parallels some of the things that were happening in the United States around a similar time period. And I think it's helpful to draw these parallels uh, so that as non-Brazilians, uh, we can kind of understand how these things developed. So around this time, say in the, the 1920s in the United States, um, prohibition was put in place and the Great Depression had hit. So we have a, a period of time where the, the state is seen as more oppressive, more authoritarian, and we have economic ruin for a lot of the, the, the common people. And it's a very similar situation we see in the Sertão. The Sertão was incredibly poor, um, really not taken care of by the government, and then we have this, this, this governmental oppression of the people that are living there. So in the United States, we saw things like uh, the Dillinger gang, uh, Al Capone's gangs, uh, and Bonnie and Clyde uh, emerge as a, a, a form of criminal resistance that was popular by the common uh, or to the common people. And in the Brazilian Sertão, we see the rise of Gangasu, which is also a form of criminal activity that tended to be uh, popular with common people who saw it as resistance against that, that unjust system of the state. And we'll, we'll dig more into that as we go on further. Um, but I think it helps to understand. So that sets the stage of, of where we are in the Sertão. And I want to now talk about uh, a form of literature that was popular in this area uh, called Cordel. And Cordel is a form of, of common literature that emerged in the Brazilian Sertão around the turn of the 20th century and has continued to the present day. These were cheap paper booklets containing up to 32 pages of rhyming verse that got their name from the string that they were hung by at markets and newsstands. Cordel was written by common people for the common people and was for decades the only reliable source of information in the Sertão. So even this form of literature speaks to the conditions um, of this region. Many Cordel booklets told stories or legends, but some of them relayed both local and international news. Um, interestingly, even the 9-11 terrorist attacks had their own Cordels released just days after the event. Now, Lampion is one of the most famous subject of Cordel, with over 150 different uh, different booklets written about him. Uh, many of these resembled comic books with titles like The Debate Between Lumpion and St. Peter and uh, The Fight Between Lumpion and Antonio Silvino in Hell, uh, which I think are, are, really, are really funny to read back on um, because they, they seem to, to reflect that same kind of comic book flair. Um, and these all painted Lampion as a, a Robin Hood-like figure, someone who was committing crimes, um, but who was kind to the, the common people, the poor uh, inhabitants of the Sertão. The real story of Lampion is obviously more nuanced than his comic book-like depictions, but Cordell significantly impacted how he was viewed by the public at the time, and how he's been remembered through today. Pergolino Ferreira da Silva was born on July 7, 1897, in Serra Talhada, Pernambuco. His family were subsistence farmers and were fairly well off, uh, allowing him to, to be literate, 
uh, and to also be prescribed reading glasses, which was pretty rare for the region and the time. Virgolino worked hard herding animals until he was 21, leading him to becoming a skilled rider and cowboy, uh, or vaquero. Like we discussed earlier, coronels in the Sertão often weighed in on societal disputes, uh, and the paramilitary state police force did not treat the, the local populations very well. This led to, to Virgolino's family getting into deadly feuds, both with other landowning families in the area, uh, as well as uh, police forces from the state. And this led to them uh, having to move several times to, to avoid and to settle these disputes. However, this all came to a climax when, uh, on May 18, 1921, Virgolino's father was killed in a confrontation with the police. Devastated by this loss, he swore vengeance on the established authority and left to become a cangaceru. And I think, I think this origin story is, is kind of interesting given the context we, we mentioned earlier about him being a, a hero of, of Cordell literature, which almost resembles you know, like a comic book hero, when this sounds so similar to like a Batman origin story. Um, I just thought that was a really interesting parallel when I was, when I was reading into this. As a cangaceru, Virgulino had acquired the name Lampion, which means lamp, as early as 1921, allegedly because he could fire a lever-action rifle so fast that at night it looked as though he was holding a lamp. The following year was when Lampion really started to gain his fame. In 1922, he and 50 men invaded the home of the Baroness of Agua Branca, stealing money, gold, and valuables. Uh, and this was seen largely by the public as revenge against politicians. This was his first major success, gave him significant notoriety, and led to him becoming the leader of his own band of cangaceros. And this really marks the start of, of the legend of Lampion. But contrary to some current popular depictions, Lampion was not purely a heroic figure. He was initially seen as a bloodthirsty criminal who robbed and killed in cold blood and whose men raided villages, bringing havoc, carnage, and rape. Uh, it's undoubtable that, that Lampion and his, his band of cangaceros were responsible for a lot of uh, heinous crime during their, their kind of their reign of power in, in the Sertão. Lampion himself was known to be singularly cruel to his enemies, and he demanded complete loyalty from his friends and showed no mercy when he didn't receive that loyalty. And just as a couple of examples, um, he is said to have killed one of his men who offended him by making him eat a liter of salt. Uh, he was said to have made an old woman who cursed him dance naked with a cactus bush until she died. Uh, and finally, and really most gruesomely, uh, quote, he tore out the eyeballs of a comrade who betrayed him and rammed the barrel of his gun into the gaping sockets blowing his brains out while the man's wife and six children watched. So given these actions, it seems like Lampion is pretty far from the Robin Hood-like character that we see him depicted as, both in songs and, and in Cordell literature. However, like many folklore characters of this era, his depictions and his character is full of contradictions and complexities. Many Brazilians see Lampion as a justiceiro, who is someone with a strict sense of justice and who fought against the authoritarian nature of the state and the upper class. The difficult and oppressive conditions in the Sertão help explain why Lampion's many crimes are often brushed over 
particularly in the Northeast. The crimes that he did commit are seen as small compared to the crime and violence of the police, the state, and the coronels. And, and this, this is kind of easy to draw parallels to in history. And I know we keep coming back to the Prohibition era in the United States because the comparison is pretty appropriate. If we look at people like, like John Dillinger, like Al Capone, like Bonnie and Clyde, they are not often seen as pure criminals. In, in some cases, they're, they're almost revered, in a sense, by, by the common people, both at the time that, that they were committing their crimes and, and now. And Lampiao and his band is, in many ways, treated the same. And a lot of that is, is also due to some of the other things he did and, and how he shaped his, his public image. So Lampian was said to be very good to poor people in areas where he had held power, which helped to win him uh, sympathy and popularity among those people. Uh, as a kind of small example uh, of him shaping his public image, he, he was known to hand out souvenirs to the people in the areas where he passed through. And this includes business cards with pictures of himself and his band. And it, it's kind of interesting. I was able to find some, some pictures of these business cards. And I'll, um, I'll, I'll try to share links in the description. I'll, and I'll put the, the images in the YouTube version of this upload. Because uh, it, it, it's an interesting slice of history to see. But in addition to that, Lampion was also infatuated with photography and video, which were not necessarily brand new at the time, but were, were definitely in kind of developmental stages. Uh, he was so infatuated with video that he invited a filmmaker, Benjamin Abraham, to live with his band for a few months. Uh, Abraham spent his time uh, taking videos of the band in their regular activities, including them training, uh, eating, praying together, uh, and just just interaction, I interacting. Uh, it was it, it was kind of a a slice of of daily life of the the Cangaceros. However, Abraham was heavily criticized by the government and press for doing this documentary since they had they had wanted Lampion to be vilified as a monster and like i was saying with with his documentary being more of a slice of life it, it did a lot to to humanize them uh, you see them dancing praying doing chores there's there's a section where uh, maria bonita who we'll we'll talk about later on uh, is is combing Lumpion's hair, so it, it definitely went against the image that the state wanted to paint of Lumpion and his band. And because of that, a lot of the footage has either been destroyed or lost. And this was hours and hours of footage, but luckily, about fifteen minutes uh, has survived to the current day, and and you can find it on YouTube. Uh, and I'll put, I'll put a link in the description. It's it's absolutely worth the watch. Uh, it's a little bit surreal being able to have that video footage of of Lumpio and his band just just in their daily life. Um, it, it I think it helps put things in a little bit of perspective. But even more unfortunate for Abraham, um, and again due to this criticism from. From, from the state and the press. In 1938, he was found dead, stabbed 42 times, and his murder case was never solved, though it is highly, highly suspected that, that the state was involved as retribution. So at this point in our story, um, we are at kind of the, the height of Lumpion's power in the, in the Sertel, so I want to take a step back and, and, and have a break to analyze some music that I think is important to, to Capoeira's connection to Lampion. 
So I'm going to play what, for many of you, may be your first capoeira song that you learned. Seem, seem, seem. No, no, no. And then we'll we'll have a discussion about how this relates to our story. of this song that I've picked for today's episode is by Contramestre Rafael. And if you haven't heard of him before, I highly, highly recommend you check out his music. To me, he is one of the most talented capoeira musicians uh, around today. His, his, it's just really, really powerful music. And like I preface this with, this song is oftentimes the first song that you learn in capoeira particularly for non-brazilians because it's it's easy to remember and especially if if you don't speak portuguese the words themselves are easy to learn and understand so sing 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 no 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 is just yes 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 no 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 it's the really probably one of the most simple capoeira songs that exists. Um, however, even though it's simple, for for me at least, it took really the longest to kind of understand what it really means and, and to internalize that. And that's largely because it's so simple and can be so vague. So the general message of this song is the, the duality and the contradictions inherent to both capoeira and, and life in general. So in capoeira we have the dance and the fight. We have inside and outside of the hoda. We have the call and the response. There's a lot of give and take in capoeira. There's a lot of contradiction in capoeira. Um, because of those things that I just listed, but also inherent to the trickery of capoeira. There's cooperation, but not co cooperation, and competition. So I think this song is a very simple way of, of talking to that duality. And of course, those same contradictions are, are present in life, and we can find lots of examples of in maybe our own lives, but also, more importantly, in in the histories of our of our countries um, and Mestri Cobra Mansa takes this a lot further in, in a version of the song that he does where he he adds in elements of Brazilian history into the lead parts he talks about the fact that in 1888 slavery was abolished but that doesn't mean that the the Africans in Brazil were truly liberated or truly freed. And then, you know, we have the legalization of Capoeira later on in the early 1900s, but that doesn't mean that Capoeira was, you know, instantly accepted in as a as a legitimate thing. So, he talks a lot about the the back and forth of the 
the process of civil rights, the process of liberation in Brazil, which is a really, I think, beautiful way to to look at this song. And uh, unfortunately, I haven't been able to find an actual recording of, of him singing this version. So if anyone listening knows of it or has heard it before, please send it to me because I'd really like to, to listen to it. So in addition to to this message. This song is also many times a, a non-Brazilian's first introduction to Lampion. Uh, in one of the in one of the lead parts, it talks about a pisada do Lampion, the footsteps of Lampion. And this is a reference to a lot of the the stories about Lampion in regards to the cunning of both him and his band. So there's several stories of of them evading the police by, uh, in some cases, walking back over their footsteps um, so they couldn't track them. There are stories of, of the, the gangaceros wearing their boots backwards so their footprints would be pointing the wrong direction. Uh, and there's others where they would wrap their feet in feathers so they wouldn't leave footprints at all. So this is kind of a small reference to Lumpion and and the the cunningness in in the way that they were able to to evade capture. So that's a kind of surface level look into this song um, and how it relates both to Capoeira culture and our story today about Lumpion. And with that, I want to pull us back in and return to our main story. So, like I said before, at this part in our story, Lampion and his band are, are really at the height of their, their popular influence and, and power in the Sertão. And because of that, he had a lot of influence over not only how his band conducted itself, but also other similar bands of Gangaceros. One of the biggest changes that Lampion made to Kangasu was the introduction of women into the band. And this started with the, the famous first lady of the Cangasso, Maria Bonita. Lampiao met Maria in Bahia in 1929 when she was 18 and married to a shoemaker. Uh, after meeting, she abandoned her husband to live with Lampiao and the Cangasso, and from then on was a part of the band. After their marriage, most other congaceros in the group followed Lampiao's example and brought along women to live with them. Some of these women, like Dada, for example, actively participated in combat in, in the different assaults and raids that the band conducted, but the majority didn't. And women were also not exclusively in charge of, of the domestic chores within the band. Uh, the divide was much more egalitarian. And, and a, lot of, um, a lot of the stories of Lampion and Maria Bonita, for example, painted more of a picture of, of Lampion, quote-unquote, quote spoiling uh, Maria Bonita. Some women saw... Kangasu as, as an attractive alternative to the life of a mother and housewife in subsistence farming. Um, like I had talked about earlier, these, these bandit gangs were often attractive escapes from, from the really hard way of life in the Sertão. However, not all of the women in the band came willingly. There were several who were kidnapped by their partners. And along those lines, I also want to make it very clear that, that none of this means that Kangaserus treated women well in general. There are several reports of rape by Kangaserus uh, in, in their different assaults on, on towns. And, and for a more specific example, uh, one Kangaseru, Ze Bayano, uh, was said to brand women's faces and other body parts with his initials if they wore short dresses or short hair. But 
regardless of these these other treatments, the the inclusion of women in in the Kangaseru band was was really a big deal at this time. And the reason why it was a big deal, and the reason that they'd been previously disallowed, was largely due to the superstitious nature of of Kangasu. So although perhaps not following Candomblé explicitly, Gangaserus followed the Candomblé belief of closing their body, which is protecting it against bullets and knives. It's a kind of supernatural uh, immunity to harm. They believed this protection was always at risk, and so bandits followed a long list of rituals to ensure that that protection stayed active around them. And women were said to be particularly damaging to this protection. For example, uh, a man wouldn't ride a pregnant mare, and he would check under his saddle before riding to make sure that there wasn't any women's clothing hiding under there. Um, to, to kind of further give context of this, this belief, here are a, a handful of quotes that were relating to the danger of women in the Kangasu. So, Senor Pereira, Lampion's master and friend, told him that women could only bring bad consequences. Padre Cicero, his spiritual guide, told him that he would be, quote, invincible as long as there are no women in the band. A member of the police force said, quote, Kangaserus, while he is not attached to a woman, while he does not fall in love, is difficult to defeat. But when he falls in love, he is vanquished, easy to fall. One of the Kangaserus, Balan, uh, his mother, told him to never live with a woman. The day you do so, your body will be open. And Balao himself uh, said, quote, A man of battle cannot go around with women. If he has a relation, he loses the prayer, and his body becomes similar to a watermelon. Any bullet can pass through it. So from, from these quotes, it's, it's clear that the Kangaseru saw women as very dangerous to, to their success in Kangasu as well as, as their, their lives. They thought that they were protected by the, by the prayers that they, that they conducted, by the rituals that they held, and bringing women around would destroy that protection and leave them vulnerable. Even the police that were hunting them believe that and so that's that's why it's such a big deal that that Lumpion not only brought uh, a woman into into the band Maria Bonita but also that that led to other women being brought into the band as well it's it's hard to I think understand um, how much of a jump that was to overcome these these kind of superstitions. And it's, it's, I think we can draw an interesting parallel here to, to early Capoeira culture as well. Um, around, I suppose around the same time, but, but even more recently. There, there have been several points in Capoeira's history where women were not allowed to train Capoeira in certain groups, and even when women were allowed, uh, there are several instances where they were either not allowed to play instruments, not allowed to lead a hada, um, and and generally just not allowed to have leadership roles within within the group or even just within um, within small portions of that, like classes, like trainings, like hadas, and all of that. And it's it seems plausible that a lot of these same superstitions are uh, are the reason why that would that would be pervasive in Capoeira groups as well. So all all of that to say that this marked a really 
huge change in Kangasu that Lampion brought to the band. Uh, and I think it's important to understand the, the cultural atmosphere that made this a big change because I think it relates a lot to Kapura as well. But moving on from here, and this is going to feel like a very unrelated turn, but I promise this all kind of ties into our, our last discussion. I want to talk about the fashion and attire of the Kangaserus. So one of the most iconic aspects of Kangasu is the attire. And this is something that we see through today in popular depictions. Uh, I think it's worth digging into what the fashion of the Kangaserus was and why it became like that, because it both sheds some light onto the philosophy of the Kangaserus and also speaks to how including women uh, in the Kangaseru bands changed how they operated. So the iconic Kangaseru outfit is head to toe in leather. Gloves, leg protectors, thick stockings, heavy soled shoes, uh, and probably most iconic is the, the hat. So their hats are a twist on the traditional hat from the Sertão uh, with very exaggerated brims, sometimes five to eight inches in length. And all of, all of this outfit is essentially derived from clothing commonly used by people in the Sertão. So like we talked about earlier, this was a very dry, arid region uh, a lot of the people who lived there were subsistence farmers. So first, there was a lot of leather available. And second, they generally needed tougher clothing to protect themselves from the, from the elements and from a lot of the, the thorny plants uh, called kachiga that were really common in the area. In addition, most of the travel uh, in the Kangaseru bands was done on foot or on animal. So being a nomadic band, they had to carry all their possessions with them. So that led to the inclusion of several different kinds of shoulder bags uh, that used to carry their food, their clothes, money, um, and whatever else that, whatever else they were bringing with them. But what's really interesting about all of this, uh, this, this attire is it was very elaborately embroidered uh, from head to toe, every single piece, and, the, and bags and hats as well. In addition to this embroidery were also a lot of symbols and metal trinkets or tokens that were attached to various parts of their clothing. Uh, metal tokens with sayings were, were commonly affixed to their clothing. Uh, for example, Lampion had a golden ring with the name Sanchia, which was his affectionate name for Maria Bonita, on his hat. So they essentially treated their clothing like giant blank canvases that they covered with these decorations completely head to toe. Some of this decoration seems to parallel gangster culture from the United States. Uh, we talked before about people like Al Capone and John Dillinger, who were also extravagant in the way they dressed as an expression of their wealth. And I, I believe that some of that is present here in Lampio's band as well. However, there was a more supernatural reason as to why they, they decorated their, their dress in the way that they did. So many of the symbols used on Kangaseru clothing reflects their, their superstitious beliefs and perhaps their Kandomblé-like beliefs. They mainly consisted of talismans and star-like symbols that were intended to preserve their closed body protections. Catholic symbols were also quite common and Lampion was said to always wear a crucifix stolen from the Baroness of Agua Branca, which was the assault that 
really precipitated his fame. This use of symbols and talismans led to the belief of the Kangaseru's outfit uh, of being their mythical armor that kept them safe from, from the police and the forces of the state. Um, I think it's interesting that this exaggerated use of symbols for protection occurred in conjunction with the introduction of women who were believed to harm their protections. Um, there have been some authors that suggest that it was almost a, a reaction to the, the threat to their protections by, by the inclusion of women. And that perhaps may be true, but at the same time as that, uh, some of the women who were brought into the band brought with them uh, really high-level embroidery skills, which also allowed for, for this decoration to take place. Now, that's not saying that women were the only ones making clothes. They certainly weren't. Um, most kangaserus were responsible for making their own clothes, and this is kind of a traditional value from people in the Sertan who were typically poor and have to make their own clothes. But there's even a, an account of Lampion himself spending about three months to make a, a satchel for a new member he liked. So we can see how important the, the outfit of the Kangaseru is to that person, which is, is why it's such a huge part of the identity of the Kangaseru and why we, we still see it as something to focus on uh, as we look back and analyze it. So as, as time went on and Lumpion continued in his, his acts of resistance and banditry against the state in the Northeast, the Brazilian political structure began to lose patience with, with the Sertão. In the early 1930s, President Getulio Vargas was consolidating power and appointed political allies to govern the northeastern states. These appointees, under the direction of Vargas, started to clamp down on the Cangaceros, and orders were given to kill Lampion and his men. This represented a significant change in the atmosphere in which Lampion and his band operated, and they had to make significant changes in order to survive. So the band then reorganized into several smaller subgroups, each led by their own lieutenants, and camped near the margins of the San Francisco River. Because of this increased pressure, the band abandoned armed assaults and relied on things like kidnapping and extortion for money. These were less risky activities for them to take, and allowed them to sustain their operations for several years. And this lasted into the late 1930s. However, in that time, the police managed to infiltrate Lampion's ranks with undercover informers, giving them significant advantage over the Cangaceros. And finally, on July 28th, 1938, the police ambushed Lampion in the Fazenda da Anchigus in Porto da Foya in Sergipe. In the shootout that ensued, Lampion, along with Maria Bonita and the rest of his band, were all slain. Each of them were then decapitated and their heads preserved in brine and put on display. This was a relatively common practice at the time, especially for very public enemies of the state like Lumpiao and his band certainly were and kind of gruesomely there are there there are pictures that have survived to today of the display of all of these heads and just as a really quick aside here something that I I found that was really interesting to me is after Lumpiao was killed and his head removed 
it was sent to a coroner to provide a an autopsy, which was pretty standard practice. However, this coroner was influenced by a a very popular new science of the time called phrenology. Now, phrenology is a is a debunked pseudoscience uh, in which people were trying to relate skull shapes to different behavioral characteristics. Uh, and this is largely debunked because most of the people who were touting it were, were using it for, for race realism purposes, trying basically trying to find a scientific way to, uh, to justify racism. And that's why I think it's interesting that, that Lumpion's head was analyzed in a, in a phrenological sense to try to see if they could find those, you know, characteristic criminal uh, features of their skull. So this marked the end of the reign of Lumpion and his band. But his legend has clearly preserved on in both popular culture and capoeira culture. And a lot of the reason of that is that he he represented resistance to what was seen as unjust rule in the Certo. Like Zumbi, this is why he is such a popular figure in capoeira, since resistance is so fundamental to capoeira culture. Uh, and Lampion being a popular Brazilian symbol of that resistance uh, becomes obvious why Capoeira would would incorporate him into our stories and our songs. But one thing I want to make sure to emphasize when we summarize our look at Lampion is that he was certainly not a perfect character and in many ways certainly not a just or just like a Robin Hood character. He clearly did many terrible things. He committed many terrible crimes, and so did the rest of his band. But this doesn't discount how important Lumpion is into the idea of resistance in Brazil. Like I mentioned earlier, the overall view of Lumpion is that, yes, there are several crimes that he committed. There are definitely many terrible things that he did. However, this, this amount of crime that he did commit is seen as small compared to the crime of the oppression of the state and of the conditions that the people in the Sertão were placed under. So I think that's how we can contextualize a, a, such a complex character as Lampion was. And with that, we conclude our episode on Lampion. Now, I want to be very clear that this is certainly far from completely comprehensive uh, on all of the aspects of the Kang of Kangasu, on all of aspects of each individual member of Lampion's band. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting stories about Dada, who was um, one of the women who was actually involved in combat in the band, uh, and also some of the other members like Gorisku. There's, there's just so much to go into, but we're looking at already almost an hour here uh, on, on just this cursory look. So those are topics that um, we may go into in later episodes. But I kind of want to just put those out there for if you're more interested in this aspect of, of Brazilian history, that those are some good places to look at. So I had a really good time researching into Lampion um, since coming from a non-Brazilian Capoeira background, I, I hardly knew anything about him. And it's really fascinating to find so much information available, especially pictures and even videos that have survived to really get uh, a, a good picture of, of who he was, who his band was, and, and the things that they did. So, like always, 
I'm, I'm extremely interested in the questions and, and input that, that all of you have on, on this episode. So, so as usual, I'll put my, my email in the description. If you have any questions about anything that we talked about today, or if you have your own stories to share about, about Lampiao, uh, please, please, please send them to me. Um, I really value getting that input because it makes me learn all, even more about whatever we're talking about. So thank you again if you've stayed listening for this long. I sincerely appreciate it. And we will see you next time on Singing for Survival. Yeah.